Good morning. As Dugan said, we are in the final feast of our series. There are seven total, all of which God calls his feast. In Leviticus 23.2, God tells Moses to speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. Now, according to the Jewish calendar, Passover is the first feast, followed very closely by the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. Pentecost falls in the middle, and the final three are around harvest time, and they are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, God has given us a very clever way to remember that there are seven feasts, and that's by way of the menorah. But this is not your typical menorah. You won't find one like this in Target or Walmart or Woodman's or even Amazon unless you go looking for it. What you'll find is a menorah with nine stems. And it's based on the story of the Maccabees, who were Jewish rebels that fought against the Syrians to protect the temple. They had one jar of oil that should have only lasted for one day, but it ended up lasting for eight days. It was a miracle. So now they've made a menorah with nine stems. The single candle in the middle is the one to light the eight candles for the eight days of Hanukkah. But this one with seven stems is what God commanded in Exodus 25 to be made out of a single piece of gold with lots of design to it. And it was to have seven stems to be placed in the tabernacle and later the temple. Seven stems, seven feasts. Well, the fact that there are seven feasts, seven in the menorah, just leads me to believe that these feasts tell us everything we need to know about God and Jesus and our relationship with them. Now, even though we're at the end of our series on the feast, we're going to talk about the first one, the one that is probably most well-known, the Feast of Passover. Without a doubt, one of my most favorite traditions that my family and I have celebrated for over 20 years. Now, whether you realize it or not, most of you are familiar with the Passover. It's the part of the story where God tells Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land. We've seen Charlton Heston and Christian Bale both play Moses on the big screen. Ben Kingsley played Moses in a 1994 made-for-TV movie. And then our kids got the animated version in The Prince of Egypt, with Val Kilmer being the voice of both God and of Moses. It's a great, if not a perfect, story that begs to be told over and over again. It's got a defenseless and terrified victim, a ruthless and tormenting dictator, and an unlikely and highly resistant hero. It's got sacrifice, murder, rebelliousness, heart-stopping suspense, horror, and breathtaking, indescribable, nobody's going to believe this, event after event. It's a nonstop thriller from beginning to end, and it's so significant of a story that God commands that this story be told year after year, generation after generation. The story is not to be forgotten, nor is the significance of the story to be forgotten. It is worth we Gentiles getting in on the Feast of Passover because it's a story so rich in meaning that scholars and theologians have written sermon, uh, given sermons, written books, written a, th a thesis or two on it. Well, I I'm not one of them, but as I've said, I'm a big fan of Passover. I love to read it, I love to study it, and I love to celebrate it because it is so significant for you and for me. So let's talk about the Passover and let's begin, as all Passovers do, with the lighting of the candles. And here's how this is going to work. I'm going to light the candles and then I'm going to wave my hands three times and then cover up my, my face while I say a prayer. 
I'm going to say a prayer first in Hebrew and then in English. The reason Hebrew is because I thought it was so pretty, I wanted to challenge myself to learn it. And the reason that we cover our face before is because we don't want to get ahead of the blessing, and the candles represent the beginning of the blessing. So we cover, I'll cover my face, say the prayer, and then we'll keep going. All right, here we go. Brukata Adonai Elohenum Malaka Olan, Asher Kitshano Bamitzpata Vetzivanu Lechadlikner. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has commanded us to light these festival lights. Isn't that a lovely way to begin? To obey God and then to invite Him to be a part of this moment. Well, after the lighting of the candle, what soon follows is the telling of the story, so that's how we'll continue. Thousands and thousands of years ago, Egypt was overrun with Israelites, and the Egyptian leader Pharaoh was threatened, so threatened by the sheer number of them that he put slave masters over them and ruthlessly beat them into submission. And then his narcissistic mind and fear got so out of control that he demanded that every newborn baby boy be killed. It's a horrific nightmare of a life for the Israelites, not to mention that they had not heard from God in all this time. God had been silent for 430 years. The only gods they knew at this point were Egyptian gods. And the only leader they had amongst them was, well, Pharaoh. He was their only leader, this dictator that beat them and killed them. And then all of a sudden, along comes Moses, an Israelite who doesn't know that he's an Israelite. This baby boy is born to a Jewish mom, and his fate was to be, of course, death. But this mom was a smart mom. She was not going to let this baby boy die. So she put him in a basket and sent him down the Nile. And who discovers him? Pharaoh's sister, who raises him as her own. He grows up in the palace amongst the Egyptians, and everything is going smoothly for Moses until it's not. A series of events happen that result in Moses killing an Egyptian soldier, which causes him to run away all the way to Midian, where he soon has a conversation with a burning bush with God himself. From there, Moses' life turns completely upside down. God asks him to go back to Egypt and set the Israelites free. Moses argues, resists, and then eventually submits. Moses goes to Egypt, addresses Pharaoh, and of course gets no cooperation. God then brings nine plagues upon the land, but still Pharaoh says no until, until the tenth and final plague. Death to every, every firstborn son and animal. When this death comes, it will pass over those homes whose doorways are covered with the blood of a spotless lamb. When this takes place and Pharaoh's son himself has died, Pharaoh has no choice but to let God's people go. Finally, finally, the Israelites can leave Egypt never to return again. God has set his people free. Well, there's so much this story, especially Passover, which we will talk about in just a moment. But first, I'd like to take a look at two conversations that took place, conversations that I believe, along with the Passover, changed the course of the history of the Israelites forever and changed the trajectory of our lives as well. We start with the first conversation, Exodus 3. God is speaking to Moses. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, 
and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, now this is the part I want us to pay real close attention to. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Well, do you know what strikes me about this conversation? These Israelites had no idea who this God was. I mean, they're told he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they are clueless. We know who God is. Why don't they? Well, remember, the Israelites have been under the influence of the Egyptians for 430 years. You know what it's like when you haven't been to church for a while or you hadn't read your Bible in a long time and, and, and you haven't prayed in like forever. What happens? You forget. You become distant from God. When you haven't talked about him, spoken to him, read about him, you forget. You forget that God is strong and mighty and he can move mountains. You forget how madly in love with you God is. When you're apart from God, you forget him. Now imagine 430 years of that distance, of that forgetting. But not only did the Israelites forget who God was, it's compounded by the fact that they were under the influence of the Egyptian gods and most likely worshiped them, all 2,000 of them. The Egyptians had gods upon gods. They had a, a god of war, a god of life, a god of water, a god of sea, a god of infertility, a god of harvest. You, you come up with any aspect of your life, and there was an, a specific Egyptian god for it. So now suddenly, along comes this god speaking to Moses, promising to set the Israelites free. And of course, Moses asked, uh, what shall I tell everybody you're the god of? God looks at him and says, tell them that my name is I Am. Moses is asking, which God are you? God simply says, I'm not any of them. Again, tell them that my name is I Am. And the name I Am means singular God. God is telling Moses that he is one God. One God. Well, they had never heard of such a thing. I mean, one God couldn't do everything. Well, yes, this God can, and he goes about proving it immediately by first taking down the gods of the Egyptians. Every one of the plagues went after an Egyptian false god. Let's take a look. The first plague, turning the water in the Nile to blood. This is Happy, the god of the Nile. The second plague, frogs overtaking Egypt. This is Haket, the goddess of fertility in water with the head of a frog. The third plague, lice from earth's dust that infested every person and animal. This is Geb, the god of the dust of the earth. The fourth plague, swarms of flies. This is Kipre, god who had the head of a fly. The fifth plague, pestilence causing death to cattle and livestock. This is Hather, the goddess with the head of a cow. The sixth plague, ashes blowing all over Egypt, settling on every person and beast in the form of boils and sores. This is Isis, the goddess of medicine and peace. The seventh plague, hail falling down from the sky in the form of fire. This is Nut, the goddess of the sky. The eighth plague, locusts unleashed from the sky, consuming every crop. This is Seth, 
the God of storms and disorder. The night plague, three days of complete darkness. This is Ra, the sun god. The tenth plague, death of the firstborn. Do you know which god this is? This is Pharaoh. He was considered the greatest god of them all, and all the Egyptians worshipped him. This God I am, is unlike any God that they have ever known. He's greater than any God that they've ever known. His name is I Am, and he proves himself over and over that he is the one true God, the only God that they will ever need. And the plagues, with the plagues, he's just getting started. This God made such an impact, this singular God named I Am, that he's written about, certainly throughout the Old Testament, about this very this very thing take a look at these three verses and these are just three of a multitude about this this subject second samuel how great you are O sovereign lord there is no one like you we have never even heard of another god like you deuteronomy 6 listen O israel the lord is our god the lord alone first kings then people all over the earth will know that the lord alone is god and there is no other I mean, don't these, don't these verses just come alive for you now? God came into the lives of the Israelites as the only God that, he would ever, that we would ever need, and he would love them like, well, no God had ever loved them. And he stopped at nothing to show his love, which brings us to the second conversation that made this God spo- so spectacular, bringing even further life change to the Israelites and to us. Exodus 19, this is God speaking again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Have you ever felt horrible about yourself? Have you ever felt unappreciated, invisible, a screw-up? Have you ever felt achingly alone or even worthless? Take that feeling and multiply it by 430 years and we can't even begin to tap into how the Israelites felt about themselves. These people were beaten down and beaten to death and of no more consequence than a bug. The Egyptians hated them and the gods used them. Not a kind word was ever said to them, not a gift was ever given to them, not a helping hand was ever offered to them. And yet this God, I am, makes himself known and then wants to call this ragtag group of people a special treasure to him, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Out of everyone in the whole wide world, he chose them to have a relationship with. Listen to Exodus 6. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give you a heritage. I am the Lord. Did you catch all that? This is what God's love looks like to the Israelites. I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will be your God, and you will know it is I who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will give you your own land. I will give you a heritage. No one 
No one had ever treated them like this. There was no such thing as a relationship with a God. The Egyptian gods only took and trampled on you, but this God, this was just the opposite. He was making them his own, and he was going to love them beyond their wildest dreams. Which brings us now to Passover. Plague number 10, the angel of death, or God's love in action. Exodus 12. Announce to the whole community of Israel that each family must choose a lamb or a young goat for a sacrifice, one animal for each household. The animal you select must be a one-year-old male, either a sheep or a goat with no defects. They are to take some of the blood and smear it on the sides and top of the door frames of the houses where they eat the animal. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on your doorposts will serve as a sign marking the houses where you are staying. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now imagine with me for a moment that you're one of these Israelites. You've watched and experienced nine plagues take over the land, all its people, every living thing, including the Israelites. You've watched this God do the unbelievable. You've been terrified, shocked, speechless for month after month after month. This went on for months. Each plague worse than one before, and now this, the angel of death. At this point, there's not a doubt in my mind that those Israelites ran out, found their spotless lamb or goat, slaughtered it, grabbed a hyssop branch, and, and, and rubbed it in the blood, and then just put layers and layers and layers of blood upon their door. And then night comes. The angel of death has arrived, and Egypt is in its grip. The Israelites sit with their shoes on, their meal prepared, and the blood upon their door. They hear it coming. The angel of death, whew, it's moving throughout the neighborhood. Can this possibly work? Would this God really spare their lives? Whew. It's getting closer. You hold your breath. You try to keep your hands and your legs from shaking. You try to keep your family quiet. And then it's here. Whew. And then it's gone and you're alive. God did exactly what he said he was going to do. He spared their lives. This was a miracle unlike anything they had ever experienced before. And he did this out of his love for them, this ragtag, poverty-stricken stricken people, his treasured possession, his holy nation. In an instant, they went from death to life. God had kept his word. Well, as I was writing this, something was, was just, uh, just kind of rumbling around inside of me because I thought, this feels familiar. And then I realized it was my dad. My dad, may his memory be a blessing, was in the hospital for a little over a week before he died. He had congestive heart failure. And my brother and I knew that the end was near. So while my dad was still able to converse with us, we had communion together, we sang hymns, and then we said our goodbyes. And then the next morning, my dad did go into a coma, and he was like that for a couple days. Well, the second night, I was back at his house, and I was still going through his stuff, and I came across his medical power of attorney with my name on there as executor. Well, I met my brother at the hospital the next morning, and we both agreed without a pause that we should let our dad go, to let him go in peace. 
So we talked with the nurses, and they were very attentive to us. So in a matter of moments, they had the machines off and stepped out of the room and closed the door. And that room became completely silent. And then my dad took two short breaths, and then one big breath, and then he smiled. Well, my dad knew Jesus. And in that moment, I knew my dad had come face to face with his Savior. And for me, I felt just like these Israelites because I, I stood there and I said, God kept his word. He's a God of his word. Well, this true story of God, introducing himself, inviting the Israelites into a relationship with him, giving them a new identity, rescuing them from death through the Passover, changed their lives forever. As it's changed ours as well. I mean, this is part of our story. Well, no, it's not, but it is our story. We have to claim this. We have to renew our minds and claim this, that this is our story. Because listen, in Ephesians 1, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us. Did you get that? Before the world was made, way in advance, God decided to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and he, and he gave, gave, I'm sorry, and he gave, it gave him great pleasure. You can tell when I get excited. I stumble over myself. So let me read that again. This is what he wanted to do, and he gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness. He is so rich in grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. First Peter, for y- but you are a chosen people. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare, that you and I, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful life. Once we are not a people, Now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. We have been adopted through Jesus into God's family. We're part of the holy nation set apart for God. He is our God, and he invites us into a relationship with him. And he'll stop at nothing to show himself to us as the only God we will ever need, and he will stop at nothing to show how much he loves us. In the land of Egypt, the Israelites experienced a Passover. On that night, they went from death to life. On a cross thousands of years later, we too were given that same life. After the Passover in Jerusalem, Jesus asked his three friends to join him in the garden. He was stressed, he was worried, and he was tormented by what was coming. So he needed to talk with his father. While in this deep despair, Jesus cried out to God, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Well, during the Passover meal, there are four cups of wine that are raised and drank. The cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise. But there was a fifth cup. The rabbis, when writing and designing the Passover feast, spent a great deal of time talking about this fifth cup, whether or not to include it in the meal. It was the cup of wrath. Something or someone had to pay for the sins of all the people. And after lots of discussion, they decided to exclude 
this fifth cup and instead put out a cup for Elijah so that when he returned, there was the hope that Elijah would know what to do. That's the cup that Jesus is referring to in this passage. He knew what God was asking of him. He knew that he was the one to drink this fifth cup, and he did it willingly for us. He went to the cross, drank that fifth cup, took on the wrath for our sins and died, and then, hallelujah, rose again three days later. First Peter, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. You see why I love this, this feast, this Passover so much? It's that moment in time when God introduced himself, showing that he is the only true God that we would ever need. It's the moment in time that he drew us to him, desiring a relationship with us. And it's the moment in time when God showed his extraordinary love for the Israelites with the first Passover, a foretelling of when he would send his son to the cross on our behalf, taking us from death to life. It's the greatest love, the greatest Passover the world has ever known. Well, we may not celebrate the Feast of Passover, but we do celebrate it through the form of communion. That is our Passover. Every communion that we take, every wafer that we eat, every, every juice that we drink, is not only a remembrance, but I'm going to ask that today it be a celebration. That we celebrate the Passover lamb that was given on our behalf, taking every single one of our sins to the cross so that we can be just like my dad, that we will go from death to life. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. You grab your cups either under your seat in the front row here or in front of you in the rest of the chairs. And usually... Usually we sit here and it's a pretty somber moment, and rightfully so, but I'm, this is the feast of Passover today. A feast means it's celebration. So that's what I'd like you to do as you eat your, eat your wafer, hold it up and say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for what you did. Or, to, or raise your cup. You can make a toast to each other. Clink your little plastic cups with each other and let's celebrate. Make this a moment. We don't often get to celebrate at communion, but we're celebrating the feast of Passover, the Passover lamb who died for us. So we're going to, on your own, you're going to take these moments to celebrate. Worship team's going to lead us, and then we're going to join them, and then I'm going to come right back up afterwards.
Yeah.
phrase that is used in Passover and is repeated a few times, and the word is dayanu. It means it would have been sufficient. It would have been enough. When God led the Israelites out of Egypt into the promised land, Dayanu, it would have been enough. But not for him, because then he said, I want to be your God. I want to show you to be the only true God that you would ever need, Dayanu. But then he said, I want to have a relationship with you. I want, I want to have you in my life, and I want to be in your life, because you're treasure to me. You're a holy nation, Dayanu. But then when he knew that he had to take down all the false gods, he wanted to show them that he truly is a God of life. And so when they put the blood over the door and, they, and the angel passed over and they lived, Dayanu, that would have been sufficient. But then God still loved us so much that he sent Jesus to live amongst us and then drink that fifth cup and go to the cross and take all our sins upon that cross. Say it with me, Dayanu. Again, Dayanu. But then... Jesus, God opened up the doors and he said this isn't just for the Jewish people not just for the Israelites this is for us this is open to anybody who will come to know me and invite me into their life so that we too have been rescued given a God and a relationship that's unlike anything else in the world say it with me Dianu. but then before Jesus left he breathed the Holy Spirit in the disciples because God he just couldn't be distant from us. He had to get in us. He wanted to be so close to us so that every step that we took, every word that we spoke, everything that was going on in our life, God wanted to be there. He had to be as close as possible to us. Say it with me, Dianu. But here's, oh, say it again. That wasn't loud enough. Dianu, there you go. But Dianu is not a word in God's vocabulary. It is never sufficient for God. He can't stop loving us. He can't stop meeting our every single need and walking with us every single moment of our day. With every breath that we breathe, God is here, loving us. There's no Dianu with God, but there's a Dianu with us. And that's how I want you to live this next week, is, is realizing that where you are in life today or where you've come from, Dianu, get ready, because God's got something more. It would have been sufficient, but not for him life with God is so rich and perfect. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to come back a Good Friday because it is an important time because what Jesus did for us is immense. What he went through on yours and my behalf, words can't, words can't describe the pain and the sacrifice. So let's come back Friday and live with that for a moment but then we're going to come back Saturday and Sunday and we're going to carry on the celebration of Passover because Jesus rose from the dead. And just like my dad, we're going to go from death to life. So I will see you this coming weekend. Blessings upon you. Thank you for coming. worship our king and come let us bow at his feet or oh, he has the great things and see what our savior has done and see how his love overcomes or oh, he has the great things he has the great things Conquered the grave and you free every cat.
Chains are 